Where's my Buck Rock crew from last night? Yeah, heck yeah, man. That was fun. You guys were up to what, like 3.30 in the morning? Just living your life? It was awesome. Okay, so uh, like I said, um, we're just going to kind of jump into uh, questions and talk about anything. Yesterday, we kind of took theology off limits because we were going to do kind of strictly apologetics, and today's kind of anything. So I've had a couple of you guys ask questions about the problem of evil. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Um, those kind of things. But I really want it to be more grassroots and you directed. So if you have any particular questions, we'll start with that, and we'll see if we want to leverage that into something else. We only have like 30 minutes, I think, right? Does anyone know? Is this 30 minutes? 30 minutes? Okay, so we won't get through very many. Uh, we'll keep it short, and then I'll let you go right at 10.30. Um, but we'll get through as many as we can, and just be patient with me as we try to navigate those things. Yes, Noah. Oh my gosh, predestination versus free will. I don't know. I, that's my best answer to you. I just go, I, I, there are too many brilliant people on both sides of the argument that I think as Christians we should all shrug and go, if God was clear on it, he didn't make it clear in scripture for us. And so all I know is that whether you believe in predestination or your free will, Arminian or Calvinist, we all agree that when you examine the life of someone, what's going to happen to them when they die. And as long as we all agree on that, we don't need to agree on uh, the method by which it gets there. Uh, yes? Um, can you tell me on Pascal's wager? On Pascal's wager? Yeah. Okay, so Pascal's wager is, it's essentially, it, it was an old school apologetics technique, which says, uh, as a Christian, if I'm wrong, I don't lose anything, right? If I'm wrong as a Christian, and this whole Christianity thing is a hoax, then I've lived my life, I've tried to do good things, right? The Christian church is the largest, uh, it's the largest giver in the world in almost any demographic. Uh, Christians build more wells, Christians feed more orphans, Christians adopt more people, Christians, they're at the forefront of every charitable organization. And most charitable organizations are started by, run by, and are sustained by Christians. Compassion International, which is the, the largest uh, outreach to um, underprivileged and malnourished children in the world is run by Christians. It's a Christian organization. So Pascal's wager says, if I live my life as a Christian and I believe in this whole Jesus thing and I die, I've lost nothing, right? If we all just turn to dust when we die and turn back, right? Blanking, we become the grass and the antelope eats the grass and it's the great circle of life. So if Elton John is right, whatever, who cares? We lived a good life. We helped people who were in need, and that's that. However, if you're not a Christian and you don't believe in Jesus, you've lost everything. So Pascal's wager is basically a statement that says, why not follow Jesus? Because if I'm wrong, I lose nothing, and if you're wrong, you lose everything. Okay? So that's Pascal's wager. My opinion on it is it, uh, the bar of discipleship is not that low. Here's an uh, interesting question people ask me all the time. If God is real, why doesn't he like, in, in chapel tonight, right? This place can be packed out, 1,500 people in here. Why doesn't God just like, you know, Leonard Skinner playing, he like comes through the ceiling, he's like, what's up everyone? I'm real. You're wrong, you're wrong. He calls you by name, he's like, you thought I was fake. You thought I was fake. And then he goes back into the heavens, right? Everyone in that moment, Unless you're sleeping, which some of you love to do when I talk. It's like your favorite thing. <laughs> My favorite is when I come out to talk and people get in sleeping position. It's not like they just doze off. They're like, oh, sweet. <laughs> 
where you start holding hands with your girlfriend because it's true love. And I, I think it's going to last too, for sure. <laughs> I'm serious. Statistics would show that it's most likely going to end in a great marriage. Um, but uh, would, would, we then, would we then conclude that everyone in the chapel tonight would become instantly a believer? Yeah. You would believe in God because you saw him, right? You would go, okay, for sure. In that moment, how many more people would be saved? Zero. Not one more. The, the scripture, it, it, says, it says in the New Testament, guess who believes in God? Demons do. Demons believe in God and they tremble. People all throughout the scriptures believe in God. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were following a pillar of fire by day and a cloud of smoke, by, or the other way around. And they were wandering the desert. And yet they still consistently turned to foreign gods and worshiped pagan idols and committed all sorts of grievous acts. Why? Because God is not in the market for believers. He's in the market for surrenderers, for worshipers, for those who surrender their life over to Jesus. So Pascal's wager sets the bar way too low. It says, why not put your chips on Jesus intellectually or philosophically and go, I guess I'll believe in Jesus just so I'm taken care of. That's not really the way we see scripture. That's not how we see the spirit changing hearts is that they would just submit or make some spiritual ascension to like, okay, I guess if, if I have a scantron, I'm technically a Christian. That doesn't save anyone. Okay. Just like God coming through the roof doesn't save anyone. Demons believe and they tremble and they are unsaved and they are destined for an eternity in hell. Believing in God does not save you. Surrender to him does. And that doesn't change any. That's when I go to do debates and people ask questions about the proof of God, I've had people who are dead to rights who walk in and they say, if God is good, then there's, there couldn't be evil. They give me the trilemma and I dismantle it entirely. And I've done my job. This is the logical issue that with your argument, here's all the fallacies you've committed. Here's the proof of what I'm talking about. There can be a good God and evil in the world. Even gratuitous evil. And then they always, I always end with the same question. If I prove to you that God was right, would you change your life and worship him? You know what the answer is every time? No. So at, the, at its core, our calling to people is not that they would become believers. God's not, God doesn't, he doesn't care about more believers. He wants sons and daughters, and that's not the same call. Sons and daughters, adoption is not the same thing as belief. And so I think we've got to make sure that's, that's, that's understood. So that's what I think about Pascal's wager. It's brilliant in theory. It, it misses something in practice. Yes? Um, you mentioned yesterday about how you don't think there's enough evidence for evolution versus like creationism. I, does, is there anything that comes to mind specifically that is in, unconvincing about evolution or that points that? Yeah, if you read like modern scientific journals, uh, uh, Darwin's on trial pretty hardcore right now. There's not, there, there's, the, uh, I would say, um, the majority of scientific scholarship, more than 51%, believes in a God or in, in a creator, which I think we don't hear in textbooks at all. And that's because science is limited, okay? Science only deals with that which is observable, measurable, and repeatable, right? So if you're a scientist, are you allowed to arrive at a God conclusion? 
No, that would be by nature supernatural. You can't do that. You've broken the field. Okay, so what we would, what we would when you ask a scientist, um, is there a God, they would quote you what's called the NOMA principle. It's called non-overlapping magisterial authorities. That means my field of science can't touch your philosophy of God. We actually don't have a field of science that says the best answer wins. We don't have one. Physics is bound to physics, science is bound to science, and all of these man-made things are limited in what they can understand. And there isn't a field of just truisms. Let's just, whatever the best evidence is, let's follow that one. Because in science, if the best evidence is God, you can't do it, right? And in physics, if the best answer is something metaphysical, then you gotta like, leave it alone, right? In um, cosmology, if the best answer is not observable by natural means, then they just let it go. Like if I asked you in modern science journals, what is the common um, belief on how the universe came to be? You know what the answer is? We don't know. That's it. We just don't know, right? Well, that doesn't mean you actually don't know. That means that cosmology can't solve it, and you're not allowed to jump in and go, right now then, the best explanation that we have of what happened before there was everything, when there was nothing in the universe, is what if there was a transcendent power? You can't go there. But there is no field of science that allows for everyone to come to the table and go, what's the best evidence? Let's follow that one. We don't have that field of science. So science is bound by that which is observable, measurable, and repeatable. So I think Darwin's brilliant. If you've read On the Origin of the Species, it's brilliant. But what's brilliant about it, in my opinion, is you found a guy, you asked him what made everything, and he came up with a pretty cogent answer, like a pretty brilliant answer. You're not allowed to use intent. You're not allowed to use design. You're not allowed to use agency. You're not allowed to use any kind of causality. And you have to come up with a theory of how we got here. It's a broken theory. It's a messed up theory. It's an incoherent theory. It, it doesn't have the backing of science behind its own theory. Darwin once said, my theory's brilliant. The only thing that disagrees with it is the fossil record. Which is the whole theory. The whole theory is the fossil record. But you can't do anything with the Cambrian explosion when all of a sudden in the strata you find fully developed species. There is no evidence ever in the history of any kind of science of a change within kinds. Um, there was a guy who just did it. It was like six or seven years ago. He was, um, he was giving, he was the number one classificationist on planet Earth. And he stands up at a convocation in Hawaii and he says... Someone walk forward and give me the evidence, the actual scientific, the way that we would believe evidence inside of a lab, observable, measurable, repeatable of, an, of a change in kinds in a species. Not inside of a species. This is very confusing for a lot of people. People believe that, that Christians are anti-science. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everything in science is built on Christian thought. Everything is, Right? Why did Newton uh, originally go into his field and, and help us understand Newtonian physics? He believed that the understanding of the universe would bring glory to God, right? When, he, when, when writing Principia Mathematica and you said, why did you write this? It was to give glory to the God who is behind it all. The only cogent universe where we're allowed to do science is one that is sustained, that is consistent. 
You see, in the old polytheistic structure where the gods made everything and Zeus was mad, so he made rivers and um, the, the um, Sumerian epics where Tiamat was this woman who was killed and her breasts become the mountains, there's nothing consistent there. You can't do science with that because if the gods get pissed off and start an earthquake, we go, why are there earthquakes? Because the gods are mad. Christianity comes in and says there is a sustainer. There's a, there's a consistent maker. There is one who's reasonable. There, when you look at math, when you look at um, Avogadro's number, when you look at Planck's constant, these things are constant. Why? There's no, there is no consistent, reasonable expectation that we should have as scientists that Planck's number tomorrow should be the same thing as it is today, except that it was the same way yesterday. On theism with God, we can go, why is it the same? Because God sustains the universe. All science is built on the assumption that things are the same, that things are knowable, understandable, visible. This is what Einstein said. The most remarkable thing about our universe is that it can be understood. Do you know how many planets in all of the galaxies, in all of the universe, have a clear atmosphere where you can observe the stars, but also the right chemicals that can sustain human life? It's, it is incomprehensibly, infinitesimally small. We live in what's called the perfect Goldilocks planet. It's got to have liquid water. The, 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 the tilt of the axis has to provide for seasons. Uh, you have to, it has to revolve around a G2 red dwarf star, and that star has to be in a certain time. It's got to be in an orbit. We need a giant gaseous planet that can absorb meteors so we don't constantly get bombarded by asteroid showers. That's what Jupiter is. It's, it's so perfectly set up, and you won't see anything else like it in all the universe. And the universe is fat. 14 billion light years across. That means if you got in a rocket ship and you traveled at the speed of light, to understand how fast the speed of light is, if you have a, like a gun and it can shoot a speed of light bullet and you say, bang, by the time you finish the word bang, your bullet has gone around the world seven times and hit you in the back of the head. That's how fast light is. And if you got in a rocket ship and you went that fast and you started on one end of the universe and you started going left, it would take you 14 billion earth years traveling at the speed of light to get to the other side of that universe. The universe is fat. It's a big old universe. And yet when you ask a simple question, which is where is there life, where is there a place where life can be sustained, where complex life can be sustained, the numbers, every single one of those 122, I think right now there's actually 312 um, anthropic principles that need to be in place for there to be life. And for just two of those, the number, like, we're getting into nerdy stuff, but you're like, this has been nerdy the whole time. Okay. <laughs> 312 things is what modern scientists believe are necessary to sustain you. 312 different principles. It's as if the universe is set so finely tuned that there are these 312 things, but these dials aren't like one in 10. The, the odds of them being set on like one in 20. It's like one in 100 billion, 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 trillion for each of those dials. For instance, the force of gravity, okay? If the force of gravity in our universe was any stronger, then there would have been no development of any complex life, and all of us in a moment would just collapse on each other, and we'd be dead. But if the force of gravity was any lesser in our universe, then it wouldn't have been strong enough for any complex organisms to come together. We would all just be floating away from each other constantly. If you want to understand how perfectly set gravity is, imagine a ruler that is 14 billion light years across. Remember how fat the universe is? A, universe, a ruler that expands the universe, 14 billion light years. Gravity is set to one inch on that ruler. 
And if it was moved one inch to the left or one inch to the right, right, there'd be no life anywhere in our universe. That's how perfectly set it is. Now, there's not one of those things that needs to be in place. There's 312 of those things that need to be in place. Another one is the cosmological constant or the rate of expansion of the universe. And it's a number that is so infinitesimally set. It's so, it is set so perfectly that here's what, uh, maybe you've heard of a guy named Stephen Hawking. He said, at the point at which the, the universe began to expand, that constant, that rate of expansion was so perfectly finely tuned. Here's what he says. There are religious implications when anyone thinks of the expansion of the universe. This is Stephen Hawking. He's like the poster child for I don't believe in God. And yet he uses the word religious implications when he thinks about it. To understand the probability of just two of 312 things coming together randomly by chance. Two of 312. Here's an analogy to give you. Imagine you're on the moon and someone blindfolds you, which is fun. And they give you a dart. And the tip of the dart is the size of an atom. Okay, so it's very particular. And on planet Earth we have actually marked one atom. If you understand how small an atom is, an atom is to an orange what an orange is to planet Earth. Atoms are small. So somewhere on planet Earth, it could be in the Sahara Desert, it could be in the swamplands of the South, it could be over in the jungles of Africa, it could be in the depths of the Mariana Trench where the Decepticons currently are. You know what I mean? It, it could be anywhere. And we take an atom on planet Earth, tiny, infinitesimal, and we paint it red. And you, on the moon, have your dart, and you have the end of your dart, and you have to chuck it at the, the earth randomly. You can't see anything else like that. And as you throw that dart at the earth, the odds of you hitting that target, that tip hitting that target, are remarkably small. Let's say I gave you 500 billion years. The odds would say it would take you about 50 times longer than that to ever hit that target, okay? But let's just say I gave you 50 billion years. At the end of 50 billion years, something happens that's bananas. You hit it. And I'm saying when at 50 billion, you're throwing it every second for 50 billion years. Uh, uh, go, 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 go. You're hitting a lot of people that are very mad, but you're not hitting the target, right? At the end of 50 billion years, someone stops you. They go, oh, you did it. You done it. It turns out life in our universe can come about by random chance. You've done it. No, friend. First of all, in order to understand just two of the 312 anthropic principles that exist, you wouldn't need to do that one time. You would need to hit it, and you would need to repeat that 37 trillion times in a row without missing once. Not once. And remember, you don't get 50 billion tries to start the universe. How many times did the universe come into existence? You get one try. And on that one try, you must hit your target. And the 47 trillion times after that, you must also hit your target in consecutive order. Not a thing, right? Not a thing. That's for two of the 312 anthropic principles for you to exist. To think that you're an accident is, if, for, for me, is the most fundamentally flawed idea in maybe all of human history that we are here some, somehow by random chance. It's just not a thing. And if I had two and a half hours, I would give you the argument from design. This is just one part of it. I would give you the whole thing, and you would go, let me go, this is too much. Right? You'd be like, I'm convinced, let me run away. But I'd go, no, friend, I've got more for you. It would just blow your mind. When you dig into it, it's unequivocally true. 
You asked the question, what are the mistakes in evolution that you think are just disinteresting? I, I, as a believer, the, my Christian theology does not persuade me from not being able to be a, uh, an evolutionist. I don't. Christians all over the place believe, believe in microevolution. That's not argued, right? I get in these debates with people, and I go to these colleges, and a student will stand up and go, yeah, hi, um, love what you do. But maybe you haven't heard of something called Darwin's finches. <laughs> you see, there's this island where, depending on the size of the prey of the finches on the island, uh, the beak size would actually change based on the rainy season and then the dry season. And in the rainy season, they would need beaks that were stronger and longer. And the other season, they would need other. Or the black pepper moths that as pollution began to take hold in different parts of the world, the dark black pepper moths would actually survive longer than the white black pepper moths. And so now we have almost an entirely black black pepper moth civilization, whereas we used to have white black pepper moths. <laughs> and I try to be kind. I try to be like, listen, like, did you, I, I gave you two hours worth of material. You think I haven't heard of black pepper moths before? Or Darwin's finches? I said, listen, you're talking to me about microevolution. You're talking about adaptation within a species. When that black pepper moth is born, it is born with all of the ability to be a black pepper moth, black black pepper moth, and a white black pepper moth, and a medium black pepper moth. God has built into every creature the ability to adapt to its environment, right? When, or someone goes like, well, if Noah took animals in the ark, there are like 47 million different species of animals. You tell me they all fit on the ark? No. Frederick, what I'm telling you is before there were chihuahuas and uh, golden retrievers and schnauzers and pit bulls and boxers, there was a wolf. And inside of the capabilities of that wolf was the power to be a golden retriever, a schnauzer, a this is the way that it happens. And then the more that those animals breed, the, the, the genetic information over generations, does it increase or decrease? Decrease, right? Uh, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, inside of Adam and Eve, they had the power, they had the DNA to create people who were real white, right? Like Irish white, you know? Or like Scandinavian Northerners white, like Minnesota white, you know what I'm talking about? And inside of them, they had the power to create Ghanaian black, Inside, and then and Chinese, and they, inside of them, they were this multiplicity of all this DNA, and every generation that goes out, as you continue to tease those genes out, we lose genetic information, right? My wife and I had five kids, biologically. What do they all look like? They're pretty white. <laughs> they look a lot like me, right? If a baby came out and it was black, there'd be a problem, right? I'd be like, well, okay, Hold on, time out. No, that's not. This is the way genetics work. The more that genes go out, the, they lose genetic information. Evolution presupposes so many things, and one of those is an increase in genetic information. It, that's nowhere seen in any life cycle, but in order for a, uh, a phytoplankton to become a horse, do you need new genetic information? Yes. You need to know how to grow a mane and how to have other structures of your arms and your appendix. You need to increase genetic information. Now, when people do experiments on animals in labs, 
they consider copying information as the same thing as gaining new information, and it's not, right? If I gave you this Bible, and then I copied it, but I left half of the information out, and I gave you another one, would you go, new information? No, this is essentially what mutation is. It's to take it, to rearrange letters and change it, but there's no new information. It's the same information. So people are like, well, what about the double-winged fruit fly? Or what about these things? Even mutations, to find a positive direction genetic mutation is, first of all, almost entirely impossible. And secondly, it's not an increase in genetic information. It's a mutation of previously instilled information. Here's the leaps in logic that evolution makes. First of all, you have to presuppose the more difficult things. You have to presuppose that all life came from non-life. You ever heard of like Miller Ulrey's experiment of a guy who basically put all these chemicals in a lab and then struck them with lightning again and again and he was able to create like simple, a simple protein and he's like, look, here's how life began. The problem with that is like sevenfold. The first one is the argument is intelligent design and if you as a human being go into a lab and create all these circumstances and then strike them with lightning, have you allowed random chance to take place? No, you've intervened. That's intelligent design. Secondly, they like put helium in there, which would not have existed in our atmosphere at that base level for it to be in like the cool, the, the hot swamps of prehistoria. And they cheated on every level. It's a thrown out experiment. We don't even give it credence anymore. The idea that people can come up with life. You don't need a simple protein. You need complex protein synthesis. You need new information. No one's ever done anything close to that. But I'll bet a lot of you in your high school textbooks will still learn about the Miller-Ulrey experiment. A lot of you in your textbooks still have Haeckel's diagrams, Haeckel's embryos. How many of you have ever seen that picture where the guy named Haeckel came and he drew all the pictures in utero of all these different animals and they all look the same? Any of you guys ever seen that picture? That crap was falsified in 1989 when we could actually take pictures of the real animals. When you put the real animals next to each other, not some guy's drawings, they don't look anything alike. Why do they keep reproducing them in the textbooks? A popular textbook company said, because it's free and it's public knowledge and we don't have anything else to fill it with. That's, that's the junk you're being served. We know that it's false and it keeps showing up in your textbooks. That's trash. To me, that's upsetting. As somebody who was in high school who was like eating this junk up, like, oh man, Haeckel's embryo. Mm, yeah, Miller-Ory experiment. Oh yeah, Neanderthals. And then you come and you start reading scholarly review journals and they're all like, oh yeah, no one believes that. Wait, wait, what? I believe that. And no one told me differently. That's what's upsetting. Life from non-life. Remarkable leap. You ask someone who's an evolutionist, what about biogenesis? Where did life come from? One of the most common and popular ways that, that a naturalist says that life came to planet Earth is what's called panspermia, which is as weird as it sounds gross. It's that there's another universe that we don't know about, and aliens from that universe time hopped and transcended into our universe and put life on the back of crystals and caves. And that is where evolution began. You're like, bro. And I'm not, I'm not saying like the weirdos who are, who think that the earth is flat. If you do think the earth is flat, I'm not calling you a weirdo. You're just wrong, right? Um, <laughs> this is like Richard Dawkins in a movie called Exposed is asked, where do you think life all came from? And he quotes panspermia. He goes, well, a leading theory is that aliens from another dimension came and jumped into our dimension and seeded life on the back of crystals. You're like, bro, is Christianity really harder to believe than that? Like, that I mean, nothing supernatural, but them aliens, they coming in hot, right? It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're not a naturalist when you think aliens from another dimension that are incapable of being identified and have left no trace and there's no evidence for them is the best answer. 
Life from non-life, order from chaos, an increase in genetic information. These are all leaps in logic that evolution just assumes. They borrow these concepts, and they're completely unproven and completely untrue. My Christianity does not preclude that I can't believe in evolution. There's a lot of theistic evolutionists who believe God could ordain that process. For sure, good for you. I am just, I'm not intrigued by the science of it. It just, it seems way too fallacious for me. We have two minutes. Is this a two-minute question? My man, okay. I like it. Challenge accepted. Go for it. Super solid question. The beginning, you're talking about John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where Lazarus is raised again. At the beginning of the story, um, Mary and Martha send someone to Jesus, and they ask Jesus, please come to the town because your friend Lazarus is dying. Jesus' response is he begins to pray, and he says, uh, God, I know that you'll give me whatever that I ask for, but it is for your glory that I'm going to wait here for two more days and let Lazarus pass away. It's a very, it's a very interesting passage. It's one of my favorite right now after losing my wife, because it's where Jesus interacts with death. It's one of the most important times that he does. The shortest, chap- the shortest verse in the Bible is actually found in John chapter 11, verse 35, which says, Jesus wept. So he weeps bitterly for his friend, and then he brings him back to life. I can only assume one of two things. One is that some people believe that when people die, they go to a state of like soul sleep, or as the Bible puts it, Abraham's bosom, where you don't have any consciousness. You just stay until the end of time. And so he wouldn't have had any, he would have been dead, and then he would have been back to life with Jesus. It's not like he would have been up in heaven, parting with Jesus, and then Jesus is like, hey, what's up, man? Lazarus. I got some bad news for you, man. (laughs) Remember how great this is? Okay. Remember how crappy the ancient Near East is? Yeah, lots of dust. Anyway, you're going back. Bye. Right? So there's one theory that says he didn't experience that at all because he went to a state of soul sleep and then was just brought out of it. And so a, a, a big segment of the Christian population believes that that's okay. And that's theologically completely okay. Um, some people, like I would believe, is when Jesus is on the cross, there's a thief that repents in the last moment. Jesus is sitting next to this guy who's on trial for potentially murder or whatever it is, but he, he, not, he's, he's being put to death for whatever he had done. He looks at Jesus and he says, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus' response is, surely I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise. With that, I believe that Lazarus did go up and experience heaven and then he was brought back. The scriptures say it was for God's glory. I think Lazarus is going to return back to heaven when he dies. But I think it's probably one of the situations where what happened is exactly what happened, where he was kind of like, maybe he gets there and, and God's like, hey, look, you're going to be here for a hot minute and then I'm going to send you back. I don't know exactly what happened. I do know this. And this is kind of going to your question. People always ask, like, do you want Paige back? It's like, of course I do. Do you think Paige wants to come back? No. My wife would be so bummed right now if you brought her back. She'd be like, no, I was perfect. Everything was perfect. It was in my glory. And I'm excited for her. I'm stoked for her. So I think the question that you're asking is a really good one. And I think the answer to it is that sometimes God's principles and God's meaning and God's intents don't align with ours. And we would go, man, if you were there, just leave them there. But Jesus makes it clear. It is for my glory that these events are going to take place. And it brought so many people to faith and so many people to saving faith. This is right before they enter into Jerusalem and the, the Passover begins to start. And so I think God actually uses a situation that for Lazarus was probably kind of a bummer in order to bring himself glory and for that more people would be saved in him.
So I think what you asked is a great question, because for sure, how big of a bummer would that be? So those who believe in soul sleep wouldn't have an issue. They would say he was asleep anyway, and he got brought, brought back to life. Those who believe in immediacy of the presence of God then would say that he went and then came back. But what he says is a good question. I shrug my shoulders. I don't know exactly what it would be. Good question. All right, we are done. It is uh, past 1030. You can now go to your second seminar. So... Um, I'll be doing round two in here, but then look at your things. This is the other places that you can go worth checking out.